Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the TR90 Body Burn 30 support call. This call happens Monday through Friday at this time, which for me is 6.40 in the morning, 7.40 Mountain Time, 8.40 Texas Time, 9.40 Michigan and East Coast Time. If you ever miss these calls, you can pick them up on Sound, S-O-U-N-D, Cloud, C-L-O-U-D, Put in TR, uh, put in Frank, F-R-A-N-K, Lomas, L-O-M-A-S, and TR90, and these calls will all pop up. They are archived now back nine plus years, all the way back to the beginning when um, these calls started. And there's been a variety of hosts and topics, and um, many of them have included recipes, particularly if you listen to any of the ones with Renee Cole. She gave lots of recipes how to use, um, the TR90 shakes and um, planning for various different holidays. So just that is something you might want to go back and investigate at some point. With that being said, I'm Susan Mann out of Portland, Oregon. I'm coming to you with an education background, but a huge interest in both health and nutrition and exercise. And because of that, I have just... um, I had grandparents that when even when I was in high school <clears throat> were not in the best of health and in that one of them had diabetes, um, two of them had heart disease and I knew I didn't want to travel down either of those particular paths even already 40 some years ago. So I've done a lot over the years to to mitigate and put off some of those things that might be causing um, health problems as I get older. Came into the TR90 program through the R90 program, which was the immediate predecessor. And I was doing eating and doing the exercises like they had us do for the R90 program, and it was not working for me. When they added the supplements to the TR90, I dropped 20 body inches. I did not lose an ounce, but I did lose inches because fat takes up a lot more space than muscle does. And over the course of about six, well, not 60, I want to say about six months, I actually dropped 20 body inches over my whole body. So I really love this program. I really like that they included um, the supplements that really were super effective with it. And so that is my personal story with this. I also found out that after about six months or so, because I do suffer from migraines and had been starting to suffer with them two or three times a week right prior to going on to the TR90 program when it came out. And my friend turned to me one day and said, you know, you haven't mentioned that you've had any migraines lately. And I got to thinking about it and something about the supplements for me adjusted my hormones so that I was not having migraine headaches. So that is something that 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 I can't say that it will do that for everyone, but my, for me, that worked. And so if I can avoid migraines and still be good and healthy, it's all good for me. So when you're first starting out on that TR90 program, that is your one really good lean meal a day, two shakes a day, 
30 grams of protein at at least three of those meals. If you're a really large person, you might want to add either a fourth meal with 30 grams of protein or increase the number of protein at your three meals so that it really works optimally for you. Taking your supplements 15 to 20 minutes before a meal is also really key. That gives your body a chance to get those nutrients in and really be well prepared for when your um, food starts reaching your stomach and really works really well if you do take it 15 to 20 minutes before. 30 minutes of moderate to heavy exercise at least five days a week. That's also another really key part to this TR90 program. It is a lifestyle change. It's not something you do once and then you never do it again. Um, At least I have found for me that making it a lifestyle change, I have better and consistent results moving forward and not nearly so much backsliding. So just saying that, you know, it is a lifestyle change so that you're getting that exercise in. Seven to nine hours of rest daily is also another another key component to this. The sleep, um, getting adequate sleep will actually help your brain make better decisions, but your body does several system resets while you're sleeping and clears out a lot of toxins, so that is really important to make sure that you're getting adequate sleep. And without the adequate sleep, then trying to make good choices about food and exercise um, are more difficult to do. I can't say that it would be impossible, but it is more difficult to do and to, to see good results. Seven plus servings of fruits and vegetables every single day. Um, they give you micronutrients. They give you macronutrients. They give you fiber, which helps clear things through your system on a regular basis and keep things from building up where they don't need to be building up. I'm trying to think. Seven or nine hours sleep, lots of exercise. Mm, I think that is just about it. Um, Like I said, part of the reason they want you to get into the habit of having a meal every two to three hours is then your body doesn't go into starvation mode, and that's part of the reason why um, it's recommended to have one really good meal a day, two shakes a day, three snacks a day. And if you're hitting a plateau and you're not seeing some results that you would like to see, you might want to add in an extra extra 10 minutes of exercise here or there. Or you might want to put in a third shake as a snack or something else just so that you're continuing to move in a positive manner forward. With that being said, I'm always looking for information to share with you that will help support our TR90 lifestyle. And with that, I'm sharing some information today out of a book that's called Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease. It was written by Robert H. Lustig, L-U-S-T-I-G. He's an MD and an MSL. And last week I shared with you, or yeah, last week I shared with you some last resorts when altering your environment. 
is enough. And so we're going to ju- jump into personal responsibility versus public health. Our libertarian philosophy says you and only you are in tor- charge of your own health. Public health is the medical manifestation of the nanny state. Public health is concerned with the health of the entire community and not just the individual. It has been said that health care is vital to all of us some of the time, but health care is vital to all of us all of the time. How dare the school district demand that my children be immunized? That's somebody posing a question. How dare the airport official confiscate my pineapple from the Honolulu airport? How dare the state check me for syphilis before I get married? Acute public health problems always occur when to someone else. Someone else gets TB from bad hygiene. Someone else gets locked jaw from stepping on a rusty nail. It's your choice, right? Yet your opinion generally changes when you're the one who gets sick or it is your child who dies of rubella because neither he or his classmate went unvaccinated. And that's the paradox of public health. It's always someone else's, somebody else's problem until it's yours. The same with obesity. Ultimately, how well our society does in solving the obesity pandemic depends on its responses to the following questions. Which of the following is the fault of the individual? When a child's brain thinks it's starving. When the American Academy of Pediatrics still recommends juice for toddlers and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology still recommend juice for pregnant women. When the first ingredient in barbecue sauce is high fructose corn syrup and when soda is cheaper than either milk or water. When high fiber fresh produce is unavailable in poor neighborhoods due to the lack of supermarkets and associated costs. When the local fast food restaurant is the only neighborhood venue that is clean and air-conditioned. When, in order to meet the criteria of no child left behind and in the face of budget cuts, the school does away with PE. When the children are not allowed out of the house to play for fear of crime. All health debacles were originally categorized as personal travails before they were declared public health issues. Cholera, tuberculosis, lead poisoning, vitamin deficiencies, air pollution, and asthma, these were all considered personal responsibility before the sheer magnitude of morbidity or mortality commanded governmental intervention. In each case, the science had to be elaborated before rational governmental policies could be designed and implemented. And in each case, politics initially stood in the way on either economic or religious grounds. Vaccinations are important not only for the individual, but for the community as a whole. It's known as herd immunity. As a result of regulations and sometimes forced vaccinations, We have nearly eradicated polio and other highly infectious diseases. Teen pregnancies was going up at an alarming rate in America from the 1960s through the 1980s. Similarly, 
HIV, AIDS ran rampant through the 1980s. Both were assumed to be matters of personal responsibility. It wasn't until the Surgeon General C. Everett Koop convinced the nation that AIDS was a public health crisis on the basis of the science of HIV propagation and needed to be responded to as such that we started <coughs> that we started to see a decline in the prevalence of either one. And then there are the chronic public health problems that transpire among the unsuspecting populace. Witness the increased incidence of cancer in the inhabitants of Love Canal or the epidemic of spina bifida in newborns as a result of their mothers being deficient in folic acid or the incidence of asthma in the survivors of the attacks on the World Trade Center on 9-11. Sometimes it requires public outcry to coerce the government into action. Witness, regulation, witness regulations on lead paint and the removal of asbestos. And finally, there are the two, large, two biggest health, public health demons that are now exist worldwide, tobacco and alcohol. The use of tobacco or alcohol is clearly a personal issue, except that it isn't. Tobacco and alcohol abuse elevate to public health status for two reasons. Your smoking and drinking affect me, also known as externalities, and tobacco and alcohol are both additive substance, addictive substances. Addictive substances thwart all attempts at arguing solely for the personal responsibility. Virtually every substance that activates the nucleus acubens and that includes cocaine, amphetamines, morphine, heroin, nicotine, alcohol, has required both a personal intervention, for the lack of a better word, rehab, and some sort of public health intervention to control the environment, called laws. For instance, alcohol control policies are in place in every country around the world, along with an extensive body of evidence documenting strategic efficacy. Tobacco control policies have lagged behind, but they are catching up worldwide as well. Even Italy has recognized that the health care dollars saved by tobacco control more than justify the statio di bambinia. Within the last 20 years, government has stepped in to curtail tobacco advertising targeted at youth. Camel has long since admitted that its icon, Joe Camel, was designated to be, quote, cool to children and adolescents. Recognizing that this was a public health issue, tobacco advertisements were banned from television and billboards near schools, which brings us to our food supply. I think we can all agree that the global obesity pandemic is a monumental public health disaster although most people are comfortable with food safety as a public health issue, many critics warn that regulating food quality is the most egregious reach of the nanny state, 
But in fact, the FDA was created to keep our food supply safe. I would argue that the food quality is equivalent to long-term food safety. My daughter got E. coli from an uncooked, undercooked hamburger at a Girl Scout picnic in 2008. While E. coli will make you very sick, the probability is it won't kill you, but it won't cause it, but it wouldn't cause the death of millions because the FDA would step in, recall the tainted product as it did with the tainted spinach in 2010. Unfortunately, the FDA stands idly while our current food supply is slowly poisoning the majority of the U.S. population. So is our food supply tainted? What if our breakfast cereal were laced with heroin by some unscrupulous food company? Isn't it the role of the government to protect us? If Coca-Cola hadn't taken the cocaine out of its cola in 1903, the U.S. government certainly would have. And we have learned from tobacco documents how the industry manipulated nicotine levels to increase the addictive potential of cigarettes. One similarity in the industrialization of drugs of abuse versus fast food is the addiction of other compounds to increase saliency. For instance, methanol, 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 no, methanol is currently added to cigarettes. In 2011, the Tobacco Products Scientific Advisory Committee of the FDA showed that menthol has cooling and anesthetic effects that reduce the harshness of cigarette smoke. And that this effect could facilitate initiation or early persistence of smoking by youth. Similarly, food processors use additives to enhance flavor, color, texture, shelf life, and other attributes of palatability. For example, the presence of high fructose corn syrup in fast food hamburger buns increases the sweet flavor and extends the shelf life. Similarly, Trans fats were superior for deep frying, as with donuts and french fries, because they oxidize less readily than vegetable oils. In one study examining how fast food restaurants plan their menus, senior executives identified shelf life and spoilage as major obstacles to offering healthier items. In the end, food processing results in combinations and concentrations of nutrients that are not present in nature and that possess potential abuse, potential for abuse. To the extent that sugar acts on the reward pathways as drugs of abuse and poses the same harms to health, we must start wondering whether it should also be subject to public health controls. Yet, in contrast to alcohol and tobacco, Regulatory controls on sugar and sugar-containing processed foodstuffs are virtually non-existent. I think I'm going to stop there for today. I, he, he's going to start getting into the economic freedom doesn't work with addictive substances next. This is Susan Mann from Portland, Oregon, signing out. The top of the hour, if you want to... Learn how to build a new skin business if you go over to Facebook, One Team Global Live. 
one of our leaders will give, be giving information on how to do that. And I'm going to take us off mute so we can say goodbye to each other. So there we have it. Why, why we need to consider getting that sugar out of our diets, but also out of our children's diets. Thank you, Susan. That was really interesting. Yeah, I. The more I keep reading what he's sharing, it just it makes sense because it helps support what we're what's been done with our TR90 program, but also keeps us all moving in a, a really good direction. I think, and sometimes the shock value puts puts us in a better spot to actually want to make those changes more permanent. So there are reasons for how it's been put together. <laughs> well, I am going to let everyone go. I wish you a wonderful day, and I look forward to seeing you again tomorrow. Go out and get some exercise out in the fresh air, if at all possible, and have a really great day. Take care, everybody. Thank you.